This podcast begins, as many podcasts do, with a secret. As a disclaimer, the story contains details about cruel and dangerous experiments done on third grade children, a deadly cancer, and the death of my grandfather, Ronald Rose Sr. This is the story of my discovery that a world-renowned private medical research institution is responsible for exposing countless young children to harmful levels of radiation and then covering it up. One of those children was my grandfather. My name's Lynn Rose, and uh, my husband uh, was Ronald Rose. We met um, in Australia uh, 30 years ago, and um, when we were both working for the same company, uh, we married after a fairly quick courtship, only three months, (laughs) and (laughs) which seems... uh, a bit reckless, but we both decided at the time, well, he was he was in his 50s, I was in my early 40s, and uh, what the heck, we were just going to do it, and if it worked, it worked, and if it didn't, there were remedies, <laughs> so, um, and it worked. This story begins in mid-May of 2018, when Lynn and my grandfather were on one of their semi-regular trips to Australia to visit Lynn's family. So <clears throat> we had been in Australia, and um, he always was very particular about knowing what was going to happen when it was going to happen. He always wanted a schedule. But, you know, I put that down to the fact that he was an engineer, and, yeah. you know, engineers have project schedules, and they like to keep to them. So <clears throat> it, was pretty irrit- it was pretty irritating, <laughs> but um, that's what he liked. You know, and so he seemed to be a little bit more um, uh, particular about that while we were here in Australia that time. Um, he left to come back to America three weeks before me, and um, he uh, he got himself home. Um, I did have to call him shortly before I got home to let him know that I'd had an accident with a friend's car and um, in order to tell him about it I just said to him I'm going to tell you something I don't want a bunch of questions and he said okay so I told him about the accident and there were no questions which seemed very odd it was odd because even though I'd asked him not to ask questions I knew the old Ron would have asked me he would have wanted to know when I got back home and he he came to the airport to pick me up um, I expected to find him in the lobby of the airport where he always was he would go park the car come stand there and wait for me well I couldn't find him he wasn't there and so um, I kind of waited around the airport wandered around up to the uh, back checkout no he wasn't there wandered back and this was it was getting late now when I called home and he wasn't there and finally I did get a call across Tannoy you know asking Lynn Rose you know your husband's waiting for you outside the baggage checkout 
So, and I had been out, I'd been outside looking for him, looking for him, wasn't there, wasn't there. Anyway, finally he showed up there about probably 45 minutes after I would normally have expected him. And we, we drove home and it seemed fine. Um, and then from then on, um, things got a little bit weird. I guess the really big thing that worried me the most was the day he was sitting in the living room and all of a sudden he got up and started looking for something. He was frantic. He was, you know, in his office. He was out in my quilting room. He went to the bedroom. He was outside. And I said, what are you looking for, Ron? He said, I'm looking for that green hose. What green hose? He's, he said, that green hose. He said, we've just had it in here. We've just had it in here. We've been messing around with this green hose. Where is it? Well, so I was thinking, well, I'm not really sure what we're looking for here, but I started looking for the green hose, thinking it was something he had when I wasn't there, but I had been there all that day. Uh, and then finally realized, you know, well, there is there was no green hose. It was something that was happening in his head. Mm-hmm. So, but I did go out on the front porch and I said, well, there's a hose here. He said, that's a black hose. That's not the hose. Well, okay. Um, I guess it was that night I really started to get concerned about it. And I said to him, I think we need to go to the ER. And so this must have been about June the 2nd. No, maybe June the 1st. I think we need to go to the ER because something's not quite right. And he said, no, you're the one with the problem. I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm fine. So um, I think all the next day he seemed like he wasn't quite quite right. And I, we got into bed on the Saturday evening. And I said, really, I think we need to go to the ER, Ron. I'm really worried about you. He said, well, he says, I still think it's your problem. But he said, if you feel that way, we'll talk about it in the morning. This was Sunday. So Sunday I got up and I was, you know, doing the housework, uh, cleaning up and all of that. And I said to him, are we, are we, so are we going to go to the ER? And he said, okay. He said, but, you know still think it's your problem, but I'll go if it'll set your mind at rest. So I got him in the car straight away because I didn't want him having second thoughts about it. Took him over there. They did an MRI immediately. And um, the doctor came back and stood in the doorway and quite baldly said... um, he has a huge mass on his brain. It's uh, it's a glioblastoma. Shortly after they found the tumor, Lynn called my mom, and my mom called me. She told me what the doctors had found, and she asked me if I would go with her to North Carolina. The next day... Monday, June 4th, we found Lynn in the waiting room of the hospital in Asheville. She was wearing Pop Pop's purple LSU sweatshirt, and we fed her the cheese and crackers we'd brought all the way from Baltimore. 
because she hadn't eaten since the night before. We waited for my grandfather to get out of surgery where the doctors were performing a biopsy to confirm their original suspicion, glioblastoma. He, he didn't really realize the, um, the magnitude, I don't think. All the time he kept, he was joking in the hospital. I mean, a lot of the time we didn't know whether he was confused or whether he was, um, you know, They'd ask him a question and he'd, they'd give yeah. him a completely off the board answer. Yeah, I remember end, I said, when Run. we were, yeah, I just, we got there yeah. on Monday and I guess maybe on Tuesday, I remember him, the nurse asking him like, so where are we? And he said, oh, we're in Ellicott City, Maryland. And we were all sitting there looking at him. And so it wasn't clear if he was actually confused because we were there and he thought because we were there, maybe he was also in Maryland. Um, or if he was just messing with the nurse who was trying to ask him questions, you know, which I mean yeah, is all yeah. the more evidence of the fact that he wasn't quite grasping the magnitude of what was going on, you know. And he never did actually, Kelly. Yeah. He never did grasp. He never did grasp how bad it was. Yeah. I don't believe Within those first few days, they had been told that the tumor was inoperable. The best case scenario was to use radiation treatment to shrink the tumor, just enough to reduce the swelling in his brain to give him a little bit more mental clarity. That summer of 2018 flew by as Lynn grappled with her new reality, my mom traveling back and forth between Baltimore and North Carolina to be with her father. In late August of 2018, this story takes a turn when Lynn remembers something that my grandfather told her 30 years before. Of course, over the, over the years, he had told me a little bit about his life in Baltimore. He grew up in Baltimore City, right by the, uh, the baseball the, the baseball. Field there. Here, she means the old Memorial Stadium, which was demolished in 2002. Yeah, and um, he tells me that he and his brother used to sneak in there to watch the games, and he <laughs> had all the baseball cards and everything that he feels like his mother finally threw out at some point, but he said he probably had a really good collection of them at some point <laughs> after all of his years going in there, meeting up with the players. Um he does remember his father chasing him all the way around the stadium one time when he had done something he shouldn't have done. And he finally came back home after he'd outrun his dad and ended up in the loft in the garage. I think he spent his night in there, away <laughs> from the wrath of his father. These years when he was growing up there, he suffered a lot from... Uh, he did have hearing loss. He suffered a lot from hearing loss. And he also had a lot of allergies. And so he would tell me that um, he would spend most of his evenings in the lobby of the movie theater because that was the only place where they had um, central heating, uh, air conditioning, which, you know, helped him with his, aller with his allergies and all of that kind of thing. So I guess I had asked him at some point, well, you know, what um, what treatment was there for you know for this um, 
for all of these allergies and the hearing loss and all of that. And that's when he said, well, they stuck red radium rods up my nose. And it was just like an off-the-cuff remark at that point. Yeah. You heard that right. Radium rods, as in steel rods tipped with the chemical element discovered in 1898 by Marie Curie and her husband Pierre. Radium, as in atomic number 88 radium, as in all isotopes are radioactive radium. My mother first told me about this secondhand after hearing about it on one of her visits to North Carolina. On August 27th, 2018, at 1.30 in the afternoon, my mom sent me the following Facebook message. Also, one thing I forgot to tell you about, Dad, that I found out when we were down there. He had really bad allergies when he was a kid, and they used to send him to the movies all day in the summer because it was one of the only places with AC. Well, they also put radium rods up his nose as treatment, radiation up his nose, exclamation point. Now, at the time, I was a full-time graduate student with multiple positions as a graduate researcher. So when I first heard about this, I immediately began digging. And what I found initially was a 1997 Baltimore Sun article called Old Cure New Ills. Millions receive nasal radium therapy in 1940s, 50s, and 60s. I sent my mom a message. I said, OMG, I am reading about this right now. Nasopharyngeal radium irradiation. Apparently, in the 90s, the VA tried to track down veterans they used the treatment on for increased risk of cancer, pioneered by Johns Hopkins physicians. I sent her the link and said, that is wild. Was he being treated at Hopkins? It would make sense based on where he was living as a kid. Before she could respond, I sent her another quote from the article. It says, The Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments, a national panel that published an extensive report in late 1995 on radiation experiments, estimated the risks of cancers to the brain, head, and neck from nasal radiation treatments as 4.35 in 1,000, 62% more than normal, and more than for any of the 4,000 various radiation experiments. I followed up and said, there's also mention of an experiment on 582 elementary school students in 1948. He would have been in third grade then, right? It specifies 582 third graders. The records of that experiment are lost. My mom wrote back, yes, he was nine years old, so would have been a third grader. I'm sending this article to Lynn. I kept digging. I came across an entry on the website for the Alliance for Human Research Protection. The title of the entry is 1948 through 1970s, Nasal Radium Irradiation, NRI of Children at Johns Hopkins. I sent my mom the following quote from the article. The President's Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments, extrapolating from the known effects of radiation doses, 
calculated that children who received nasal radiation faced a lifetime risk of brain cancer of 4.35 cases per thousand population, 62% higher than normal. The rate of all cancers of the head and neck caused by the treatment could be twice that high, according to the committee. She wrote back, Lynn wants to sue. Tune in to the next episode to find out how this story unfolds and is continuing to unfold as we speak. The theme music for this episode is the song Mama Said by Cat Clyde.